Why do you live where you live? I mean, the house that you picked? Was it the garden, maybe? Was it the neighbours? Uh, was it the town? You really wanted to move to Ammanford, really wanted to live in Bryn Amman, really fancied that spot in GCG and the view that you could get, could get of the mountain. Maybe it was that location, location, location. Maybe it's that you've always lived here. This is the place you grew up. Maybe you don't live in Ammanford or anywhere in our beautiful little valleys over here. Maybe you live far away around the other side of the world. Well, why do you live there? Why are you where you are right now? That's a question you could answer in lots of different ways, isn't it? This is one of the ways that the Bible answers that. In Acts chapter 17, a few chapters on from what we'll be looking at today, in a speech in Athens, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says this, The God who made the whole world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. From one man he made every nation of humanity, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and, this is the important bit, listen to this, he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. As in, he chose when you'd be here and exactly where you'd live, that God has placed you in time and in space. Why? God did this so that they should seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Why do you live where you live? Well, God has placed you there, says Paul, says God in the Bible. God has placed you where you are so that you would find him, so that you might be the means of other people finding him, that we might reach out and find him, though he's really not far from each one of us. That's the story that we're looking at today, the story of people being scattered far away to live in places, to be honest, most of them probably didn't ever want to go to. Scattered to live in far away places, and now we get to look down the centuries and see why had God put them there? Why did they get scattered well? So that they could find God and so that the people around them could find God and grow to know him better. That's why you are where you are, to get to know God, to be planted deeply into him and to bear fruit like a healthy tree. Let me read to you Acts chapter 8. That's where our story comes from today. Acts chapter 8, if you've got that in your Bible there. Actually, we're going to read from just a couple of verses and back into chapter 7 to set the scene. Stephen, this great leader in the early church, has been brutally killed. And then something really sad, but really hopeful, breaks out. Let's read the story. Chapter 7 of Acts, we'll start from verse 59, and then we'll read on into chapter 8. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. 
He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when Philip, uh, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. It's a bit of a surprise that that anybody in Samaria was coming to know God. So they send a delegation to go and check it out. And verse 15, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part in or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing may happen to me. After they further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is such a cool story and a real surprise, like I said halfway through, in so many ways. A big surprise because the Samaritans get to hear the gospel. That's something for later on. We've got to see, first of all, there's a kind of three phases in this story. Okay, it's a, a bit like a tree being planted. First, the dam of persecution, of suffering breaks. A huge tidal wave of struggle pours out on the church, not just on Stephen, but on all of the Christians. And they're scattered far and wide. So the seeds are scattered. That's phase one. Phase two, those seeds get planted and begin to grow. Phase three, we need to do some pruning in the garden. Those plants start to grow, it's in the life of Simon especially, start to go a bit wild from the very beginning. So we need some careful, wise, honest pruning so that that tree can bear fruit. Do you see those three phases? The scattering of the seed, the growth of the seed, and then a bit of pruning. All of us need that. Um, and God has put us where we are so that we could have that, so that we'd grow, be planted, and bear fruit for him. Okay, let's have a look at the, the beginning. This dam of persecution breaks, and it's really vicious and brutal. Saul, who we'll meet later on, he'll be one of the main characters in the rest of the story, but more of um, his story in a couple of weeks. Saul starts a really vicious persecution. He starts dragging people off to prison, and we hear later on, killing them. He isn't just approving of executions anymore. He's actually pursuing Christians all the way to death. Saul begins to destroy the church. It's a really vicious word. This tidal wave of suffering pours out on the church. It seems like it's the end. It seems like all is lost. This beautiful community that's been growing up, this community of joy, this community of sharing, this community of unity, where everybody's of one heart and one mind, has everything in common, and 
loves teaching, loves serving, loves selling their stuff and giving it away, this beautiful community, this church gets blown apart, scattered to the four winds, washed away in a massive tidal wave of struggle. And it seems like everything's finished. It's over. It's done. Until you realise that suffering doesn't get the last laugh in this world. That Satan doesn't have the final say. God is the one who gets to say what happens and he's the one who specialises in bringing life from death. He's the one, isn't he, who specialises in bringing joy from grief. He's the one who specialises in bringing goodness from disaster. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And this is resurrection, got resurrection written all over it. People struggle, Christians suffer, but life comes out of that. Suffering doesn't have the final say. It's as if Satan's come along through Saul and he's got this dandelion of the church and he, like the big bad wolf, is trying to destroy it. Maybe you can imagine him as a gardener who's trying to perfect his lawn, make it all nice and tidy and perfectly green, and he hates dandelions with a passion. So along comes the big bad wolf, picks up this dandelion and tries to blow it out with all of his might. But you all know what happens when you blow a dandelion puff. I don't know what those things are called, you know, when they turn into the seed puff things. And you pick it up and blow it, and that's the last thing you want to do if you're standing on your lawn. Because all it does is spread the seed even further. That's what Saul does. Vicious persecution. Tries to destroy the church, but in trying to destroy it, he just spreads it. It's almost funny if it wasn't so tragic. Poor old Satan shoots himself in the foot again and again and again, and he keeps on doing it through church history. Can I read your story? During the Iraq War, the first Gulf War in the early 1990s, it was a brutal and horrible war. Lots and lots of Iranian, uh, Iraqis were displaced. Um, when the coalition of, the, of um, America and Britain and a bunch of other countries went into Iraq to free Kuwait, lots of Iraqis were displaced and they moved to Jordan, the country just next door. Lots of the Iraqis were Muslims and lots of the Christians that they met, of the Jordanian people that they met in Jordan were Christians. And um, the story goes like this. Many Iraqis who crossed into Jordan were welcomed into the homes of Christians living in the Jordanian, Jordanian capital and were stunned at the hospitality and kindness shown to them. They naturally asked, why are you being so kind to us Muslims? One Christian told me how he replied. He said simply, the love of Christ has been shown to me and I wish to share it with you. When I visited in Jordan in 2003, um, the author says, a local church leader told me how so many Iraqis had become Christians. There were now more Iraqi Christians in Amman, the capital, than Jordanian Christians. Later on, the writer says, look, we could wring our hands in despair when faced with such trials and obstacles, war in your own country, displacement, having to go far, far away from home. But with the eyes of faith, we're able to see God at work, breaking up the ground and creating opportunities for the advance of the gospel. As someone has said, without God, we cannot, but without us, he will not. Our sovereign God graciously calls us together to work for him wherever he places us. And these Christians got scattered. They'd been back in Jerusalem, if you've been following us the last couple of weeks, selling lots of stuff, selling their houses, selling their fields, selling their inheritance, pulling up their tent pegs, if you like, 
and now they're actually ready to move on. They haven't got their roots down deep in this world. They've got their treasure stored in heaven and they're ready when the wind of suffering comes, this tidal wave of struggle. They're ready to move. They're ready to be washed wherever God takes them and to turn that suffering into growth. So what do the Christians do when they get scattered? They don't moan too much about it, at least we're not told that. They don't give up their faith and say, well, look, so much suffering must mean there can't be a God. He would never let me go through anything like this. So walk away. They don't seem to do that. They just crack on with the job at hand. And what is that job? Well, they preach. Every man, woman and child, all the regular people, because the apostles are stuck back in Jerusalem, every man, woman and child, everyone who'd been scattered, verse 4, preached the word wherever they went. And then we zoom in on Philip. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Did you see those two different words? Preached and proclaimed. They are two different words in Greek. The proclaimed word, what Philip does is like standing up in the marketplace, in the town square, in a pulpit and giving people sermons, telling people the whole gospel message from the front. But that preached word in verse 4 is, is more like just gossiped, talked to everyday people, told them good news, shared something that they had themselves and wished that other people could have. They gossiped the gospel. Do you see? Right back in Act 17, right at the beginning of the sermon, what did we say? Well, why has God put you where he's put you? Why do you live where you live? So that you could gossip the gospel. Whether you're a preacher or not, whether you're a mother or a woman or a child, or just been a Christian a couple of days or been here in our church for 40 years. Whoever you are, however much you know of Jesus, wherever he's put you, your job is to be somebody who sprinkles seed. Perhaps you've moved here from far away. A good bunch of people in our church now who've moved into this area since the pandemic began. Maybe life has been quite difficult for you. Maybe it's been hard to settle in. Maybe you miss friends back home. Well, God has moved you here. For what purpose? To find God. To get to know him better, if you knew him already and to share him with those around you, to be part of his work of spreading seed. Have you lived here forever? Have you been here since before you were even born? Well, what has God put you here for? He's put you here to gossip the gospel. So make sure, your job is to make sure that your roots aren't so deep in the local community, so deep in your reputation, so deep in what other people think about you, so deep in having your treasure in this world that you can't take the risk of going to your neighbours next door, or of going to your boss, of going to that person who's always known you and saying, I know I've never really talked about this before, can I just share something with you about Jesus? Can I share the hope that I've got? Can I share with you some of the life that I know in him? That's what we're made for. Whether you're a preacher or not, you're made to be a gossiper of the gospel. Bet you never thought you'd be encouraged to go and gossip um, in a sermon, but that's what we're for. The dam breaks, suffering happens. People get moved to all sorts of places in the world. I bet your life hasn't gone exactly as you planned it in the last few years or in the last 20 years. But here you are, God has put you here to be a gossip, a gossip for him, to share the gospel. This is the story at the beginning of chapter eight. These people, Saul and all these persecutors, intended it for evil, but God worked it. God intended it for good. This is how they begin to reach Jerusalem and then Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That was Jesus' promise back in chapter 1, verse 8. Um, this has always been the plan. 
for them to take the gospel, not just to their friends in Jerusalem, but out to Samaria and eventually to the end of the earth. But that's next week. Okay, so the seed gets scattered. We're scattered and we're supposed to be spreading seeds. But then that seed takes root in the most unexpected people. These Samaritans, they're really strange and not the kind of people that you would expect to be accepting messages about God from Jewish people. They really are the kind of baddies of this period um, of kind of uh, Bible history, at least in Jewish eyes. They were the kind of people who are sort of half interested in God, but built a temple in a different wrong place, had some weird laws, but also didn't keep to other ones of the traditions and laws who always looked down on the Jews and the Jews always looked down on them. They, they're just not the kind of people that you would invite to a dinner party. In fact, they even made sure that their paths went round their towns sometimes so that they didn't meet each other. The Samaritans were people who lived close by to Jerusalem, not too far away, but they were the people who were as far away as you could think from actually wanting to accept the gospel, wanting to accept the good news of Jesus, a Jewish teacher who followed and taught people about the Jewish God. These were not the kind of people you'd expect to come to church on a Sunday. But the seeds of the good news take root in their lives. And they actually believe Philip. They welcome him. There's all sorts of stories. If you flick back to Luke's first book called the book of Luke, there's stories about Samaritans there rejecting Jesus, not wanting anything to do with him. And there's stories about John, who appears in the story later on, wanting fire from heaven to fall down and burn up the Samaritans. They really didn't like each other at all, but here's Philip teaching them about Jesus and they accept the message, they believe it. In fact, they believe it over some really other, really powerful other teaching that they've been believing. Phil, um, Simon, this other teacher who's around, who's a sorcerer, who's been using kind of demonic, dark spiritual powers to impress people, to wow them, to, to kind of impress his influence over the people. They've been believing him and following him and all of a sudden Philip turns up and tells them about Jesus and they turn their backs on Simon and follow Jesus instead. I wonder if you're into spiritual stuff or if you've got your um, colleagues at work or friends or your family who are into spiritual stuff, into mediums, into horoscopes into maybe Ouija boards and I don't know if that kind of stuff still goes on today but I, I know plenty of that kind of thing um, that people who I know and people I know I know who have been involved in or invited to it's fairly big in our area here in Anderford people want to go and have a message from beyond the grave they want some comfort people want to go and play with dark spiritual things because it gives them a, a sense of power maybe People want to go and read books about strange, dark things. Get into practices that play with strange, dark powers because they want knowledge. Knowledge, power, comfort. Those things are they're pretty attractive, aren't they? Do you know people like that? Are you somebody like that? Who's kind of dabbled in stuff that gets a little bit dark, a little bit strange, a little bit spooky, but kind of gives you a buzz at times. Well, that's what... Simon was teaching. That's what amazed these people in Samaria. That's what they were into. They were into power. They were into knowledge. They were into comfort from beyond the grave. Strange stuff that maybe they couldn't explain. And then all of a sudden, Philip turns up with a very, very simple message. God has come to earth and he loves you. God has come to earth and he's died for you. God has come to earth to take away all of our mess, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our darkness inside. 
He's come to take it away, to bring us close to him and to give us hope for the future. Do you want to know knowledge? Do you want to know truth? Well, Jesus, God who's come to earth, Jesus is truth. Do you want to have comfort? Have you lost somebody recently? Do you want to know that there's life beyond the grave? Do you want to know that this isn't all that there is? Well, Jesus broke through death and out the other side. He's the only person who has ever actually been there and come back again. And he's the one who gives us life and hope and comfort. And in fact, he gives us his spirit to live in us. So do you want power? Well, what about the power that made the world, the power that raised Jesus from the dead? How about that power? God's spirit himself living within you to help you each day, to help you see what's true, to help you know knowledge, to give you comfort, to give you power. I mean, real spiritual, useful power, not just playing with stuff you don't quite understand. Are you interested in that kind of spiritual stuff? Well, Jesus is the one you want to come and meet. Don't mess around with that dark other stuff. It really will just get you in trouble, like it does with Simon. We'll look on at that in a second. Simon is there wowing the people. Philip turns up with the message of Jesus, and it's just so much better, so much clearer, so much more powerful, so much more beautiful, so much more magnetic, and they can't help it. They want that joy, they want that knowledge, they want that power, they want that comfort, they want that forgiveness. And they come to Jesus, flocking to him. So much so that the apostles back in Jerusalem, are, are you sure? They hear the news that the Samaritans are beginning to come to know Jesus and they have got to see it for themselves. So they make the trek down and then something really strange happens. See, usually when people have been coming to know Jesus, repenting of their sins, turning their backs on their old life and trusting Jesus, opening their arms and welcoming him in. Usually when people had been doing that, the Holy Spirit would come into their lives immediately. But it hadn't happened here. They kind of accepted Jesus, accepted the teaching, believed Philip, but the Holy Spirit, that power, that comforter, hadn't come to live in their lives. Well, why not? There's all sorts of different theories, but I think God held back the Holy Spirit so that Peter and John, the apostles, the ones who would be the foundation of the church, the ones who'd met with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who were Jews, that they would come to meet the Samaritans and they would give them the spirit, the laying on of hands at prayer, and that that would show this is going to be one church. No more Jewish church over there and Samaritan guys over there. No more old people church over there and young people church over here. No more women over here, men over there, poor people here, rich people there. This nation there, that, no, this is going to be a church that is one, that's united, that has no dividing lines down the middle of it. This is a church where everybody's welcome because we have one God, one saviour, the Lord Jesus, one spirit, one foundation on the apostles, on Jesus as the cornerstone. We're going to be one building, one temple, one body, one family, one under God. No dividing lines. I think that's what's going on in the story. So it's a shock that Samaritans are coming to know Jesus. The disciples, the apostles come down and they see that it's true. It's really happened. They're welcoming. They're full of joy. And so they give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. No second class citizens in the kingdom of God. No us here and you over there. We're going to be one together. You see the seed of the gospel, the seed of the good news of Jesus is scattered and it bears fruit. People begin to grow. And then all of a sudden, man, we're running out of time, but all of a sudden, Simon, 
starts to go off in an awfully weird direction. Simon picks up all that he knew from his kind of previous life where money talks, where if you buy something, then that gives you power and authority over other people, where what you can do it is all about what you can um, pay for, where status is what's important, where power is what's important, and you can buy that power with your own goodness, or you can buy that power with your own money, or you can buy that power with your own status or reputation. You see, Simon has got everything upside down. That's why Peter comes back at him so hard. It's why Peter prunes off branches and says, come on, Simon, you can't grow in some crazy wonky direction. That'll get you in real trouble. Peter literally says to him in verse 20, may you and your money go to hell. Go to hell, Simon. This is not how it works. He warns him. He isn't just brushing him off or pushing him away as if, you know, once you make one mistake, you're out. Not like that. No, he's warning him. He's saying, Simon, this is not how it works in the kingdom of God. You can't buy your way in. It's not about status. It's not about climbing up on top of other people and getting influence over them. It's not about being the powerful one who doles out power to others. No, that rests in God's hands and he gives it for free. He's the one with the status and he raises up the littlest, the smallest of us. He doesn't ask us for his money in exchange for his power. He says we should come to him empty-handed. We should come to him with nothing except our knowledge that we need him. That we should come to him and he'll give us everything we need for free as a gift. So that the lowest of the low get picked up and seated with princes, so that the highest of the high get humbled and brought to everybody else's level. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. You don't buy your way in. You don't stand up on top of other people. Simon is in real danger of bitterness, real danger of sin that's gonna lead his plant, lead his tree to be bitter and horrid and deathly. And so Simon Peter, Simon Peter, he does a really kind thing and he lops off branches and prunes and says, no, it's not gonna work like that. Peter, sorry, Simon, you need to repent. And he does, he does. Pray to the Lord for me, he says, that nothing may happen to me. Pray that I'll be okay. Pray that I'll grow in the right direction. Pray that I'll bear fruit. Pray that this heart of bitterness, that this heart that wants to have power over other people, that this heart that's so easily swayed by money and love of this world would be changed to come and follow Jesus as he really is. Can we make that our prayer today? Can we pray that we would be people who'd be bold in gossiping the gospel? Can we pray that we'd be people who, who want to share with everybody around us? Can we pray that we'd be people who don't divide off from others for whatever reason, but, but seek for unity in Jesus, unity in truth, unity in the gospel? Can we pray that we would be people who stay faithful to Jesus, who stay faithful to him, and who go and find others to plant seeds in, they might bear fruit and be faithful to him as well. Come on, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this story. Thank you that it gives us real hope that in our own suffering, in our own struggles, Lord, that sadness doesn't have the final say. Lord, we thank you for that hope and help us, we pray, if we're in that situation at the moment, Lord, we ask that you would keep our eyes fixed on you, keep our eyes fixed on the one who uses even dark things 
who takes all of the sadness in the world, Lord, that you're able to work all of those things for the good of those who love you. Thank you for that illustration and the story today. And we ask, that, Lord, that we would one day look back at our lives, at the sadness that there is in them at the moment, and see that you were working good, even in those hard times. Lord, help us to see that, we pray. Help us to be spreading uh, the good seed of the gospel around. Lord, help us to be gossiping in a good way. Help us to be doing it to everybody. Lord, sharing the good news with all of those, whoever, however far they might seem, however unlikely they might seem to accept the good news. Help us to be generous with the good news of Jesus, with those around us, that they might have joy. And Lord, we pray, last of all, would you keep us faithful? Would you prune us that we might be fruitful? Would you keep us from bitterness? Would you keep us from wanting power over others? Would you keep us from loving money and all the stuff this world has to offer? Lord, would you keep our eyes fixed on you? Make us fruitful trees that pour out good seed that others might grow as well. Amen.